Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. My co-host, Brian Lasley, is not with me today, and that will become evident as to why here in a second. But as many of you might know, when Air Forces became independent, when in particular the United States Air Force became independent in the early years right after World War II, one of the biggest arguments for doing that, for creating a, a separate service, was this idea of strategic bombing, that that was something that the Air Force was uniquely equipped to do. The idea of strategic bombing, of course, for those that don't know the terminology, is this idea of bombing things kind of off the battlefield, right? Not bombing the enemy troops directly, but targeting things, you know, like industrial uh, targets or sources of production or even bombing cities and stuff directly. Uh, That's strategic types of bombing as opposed to tactical types of bombing or or other types. And when the United States Air Force became independent, it set up different major commands, each that had kind of different areas of expertise. And the one that handled strategic bombing was the largest that got most of the budget that was Strategic Air Command or SAC or SAC. And today we're talking to someone who is an expert on SAC and strategic bombing, and we're going to get into that, including the sometimes controversial personality of uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was one of the most important early leaders of SAC. So today we're talking to Mel Daly. He's a associate professor at the Air Command and Staff College down at Maxwell Air Force Base. Uh, Dr. Daly is a retired Air Force colonel himself. He has a PhD in American history from UNC Chapel Hill, but he was also a pilot. He flew the B-52 and the B-2. Uh, he's flown in a lot of different uh, conflicts, including Desert Storm, Enduring Freedom. In fact, uh, Dr. Daly has a record-setting combat mission of over 44 hours, and he's the author of Always at War, Organizational Culture and Strategic Air Command, 1946 to 1962, which is what I was fortunate enough to talk to him about in this pre-recorded interview, which is why Dr. Leslie's not here with me today. But we're going to dive right into this interview with Dr. Daly, and we hope you enjoy. Dr. Daly, thanks for being here. Let's just dive right in. Uh, so normally when we talk about pilot culture, usually I think for most people what comes to mind is the fighter pilot, you know, jock mentality kind of thing. But you wrote more about bomber culture. Can you maybe define how you would define that bomber culture, at least as it was in, in the heyday of Strategic Air Command? So when flying started under the U.S. Army, part of the Signal Corps, there was a mentality of if we and other people have written about this too, but if the closer we are to the army, the more we're going to be associated with the army. Um, So there were those who viewed independent strategic bombing uh, as a solution to two problems. One was, hey, we don't want to always be flying artillery for the army. We can have effects beyond uh, the forward edge of the battlefield. We can have effects deep and we can bring these wars to a, a... solution quicker by taking the fight to the enemy deeper. Um, and we can, in the Duhay sense, we can win the wars all, we can, air power can win wars all by themselves. So there was that idea of there is a strategic effect of, hey, let's get air power deeper, affect the capitals, affect the industry, and that will bring a, a rapid close to the war rather than sitting here and being flying artillery for the army. The second aspect is let's get away from the army distance wise and separation um, because the further we're away from the army, the more autonomy we'll have of our own operations and that will lead to an independent service. So there was a strategic aspect to it as well as a political aspect. What 
were the goals in, in setting up strategic air command as a separate command? How did that come about as being a separate entity within the air force itself? Cause it didn't seem to happen immediately. So strategic air command was set up in 1946 back when the air force, well, not the air force, but back when <laughs> air power was still under the army. So before the independence, before an independent service was established in 47, that being said, SAC, Strategic Air Command, was initially modeled after what 20th Air Force that was done in the Pacific Theater. So um, in the war in the Pacific, 20th Air Force was stood up because we had these brand new bombers, B-29s, um, and it was determined that this new numbered Air Force would be headed by Hap Arnold and run out of D.C. Now, the reason for that was, again, going back to the political idea, um, you had two theater commanders out in the Pacific at the time, Nimitz and MacArthur. And the idea was these two guys are going to fight over our B-29s and try to break them away and use them for means other than what we think they should be used for, which is taking the fight to Japan. So uh, 20th Air Force was a numbered Air Force run out of Washington with a forward commander. One of those was LeMay. And the idea was to do independent strategic bombing so that theater commanders could not have a a grab at these at these new B-29 bombers. Um, so when the Air Force stood up uh, Strategic Air Command, it wasn't to do the nuclear mission initially. The mission of Strategic Air Command was to do strictly independent strategic bombing, and that was the real purpose of Strategic Air Command. There was another uh, command, Tactical Air Command, which was there to do the close air support, and then a command devoted to the defense of the United States, so, uh, you know, continental defense. Something that's always kind of bugged me. I'm, I'm curious to see what you, how you would explain this. The first commander put in, in charge of SAC is Kinney, right? Right. And he seems like much more of a tactical guy. What is the reasoning for putting him in charge of the Strategic Air Command? So as part of the research, if you go back and look at the oral interviews that Kenny gave, most of the commanders when they left service sat down and did an oral interview. But if you were to ever sit down, I didn't have the opportunity, but if you look at his oral interview, um, Kenny was, first of all, he was the highest tenured uh, four-star general in the air service in the, at that time without a command. So he was a four-star, the highest tenured guy, and he did not have a command. Um, and then when you ask him, you say, hey, why were you in charge of Strategic Air Command? He will he bluntly put it in his oral interview, I have no idea. I have no idea why they put me in charge of this. Um Understand that at the time, uh, Kenny is the highest tenured four-star general, as I said, so he is given strategic air command because there's really nothing else for him to do. There was also a move afoot at the time that we're standing up the United Nations, and there was a idea being floated around of creating a United Nations military with separate services, um, and one of those would have been a United Nations Air Force, and Kenny was uh, going around giving speeches and doing things to forward position himself to be the commander of that United Nations Air Force if one was going to be created and really left the running of Strategic Air Command to his deputy, who was a, no offense, was a maintenance officer, was not a, a flyer. And it did not work out well for Kenny or his deputy. So your book and, and many other books have argued that getting rid of Kenny and replacing him with LeMay is kind of this major turning point. Right. For SAC, can you also explain kind of how, why that shift happened, but also kind of the effects that it had? 
So, so a couple of things were going on geopolitical. We had a, we had a notion that, you know, this is 1947, 48. We have a notion uh, already with the Ken and Long Telegraph that there is a Soviet Union, an Iron Curtain on the rise. Communism is not our best friend. Um, we have a Berlin airlift. LeMay participates in some of the planning for that. Um, but we understand that communism is now um, a threat. So a decision is made, hey, how do we combat this? We can either do universal military training, which was one idea being floated around. We can create a conventional force of ourselves to deter the Soviet Union. Or uh, the second alternative was we can create a force of strategic bombers, the only leg uh available to deliver nuclear weapons at the time. We can create a force of strategic bombers and atomic weapons to deter the Soviet Union from advancing. And so uh, a decision is made, hey, we need to get a force ready to, to do this mission of bombing with atomic weapons if required. Spots is the air chief at the time uh, under the new independent air service, and he's not happy with the way SAC is going. So he sends out Spirit of St. Louis, right? He sends out Lindbergh to fly with SAC to kind of say, hey, go out there and see how they're doing. Um, so Charles Lindbergh goes out and flies with Strategic Air Command, and he writes a scathing report basically saying this unit, this organization is not up to snuff. They're not ready for prime time. And as Spots is leaving an office and Vandenberg is coming in, they basically say, hey, um, we need the best bomber general out there. And they both agree it's General LeMay. General LeMay comes in in October of 48, you know, as any general officer would, sits down and, you know, looks at his staff and says, hey, how are things going? Right. And of course, the staff naturally responds with a, hey, thumbs up, boss. Everything's fine. Um, and LeMay's like, well, if that's the case, you know, kind of, hey, why is uh, Kenny back at his house packing his boxes and I'm sitting here? So he, in January of 49, uh, he does, uh, he picks out a no-show target in or a first-show target, which basically means nobody had ever flown against it in SAC, in uh, right field in his home state of Ohio. And he says, I want every bomber in SAC to fly against this target. And in January 49, every bomber in SAC, and we're talking hundreds of bombers, not like the numbers we have today, but hundreds of bombers take off to fly against this target. And not one bomber uh, successfully executes the mission. Most of the bombers hadn't been flying at combat altitudes. So when they got up to combat altitudes, they were breaking. And those that uh, successfully got up to combat altitude, the radar navigators, the bombardiers, Hadn't been used to offset bombing against, you know, fresh targets. They've been flying against the same target over and over again. So they had all the aim points memorized. So when they're trying to do this offset bombing, they're not finding the target. And so they missed the target. So not one bomber in SAC successfully completed the mission. And LeMay's idea is, now that I have your attention, we are no longer preparing for war, but we are at war, which is where the title of the book, Always at War, comes from, is LeMay's idea that, hey, every day you come to SAC, you're not preparing to go to war with the Soviet Union. You are at war with the Soviet Union, and we're going to treat this as every day we are coming to work to do war with the enemy. So what types of things does LeMay do kind of off the bat to really turn turn that ship around? So first of all, 
I say one of the things he did was what we call realistic training, which is everybody you know who serves in the military will say, hey, we do realistic training every day. Well, true, except for General LeMay, realistic training meant, hey, if my uh, mission to the Soviet Union and back is 20 hours, well, guess how long your, your training story is? It's going to be 20 hours. Um, in today's military, right, bomber missions have what we call an average sortie duration somewhere in the four to six hour range, I would say, right, which is probably not what their normal combat mission is. Um, but LeMay's idea was, hey, your sortie to the Soviet Union and back is 20 hours. You're going to fly 20 hours. The other thing was a lot of the things that LeMay did in SAC, uh, the culture-wise, came from his previous experience in World War II. So in World War II, you have a B-17, which basically is a football crew or football team, you know, 10, 11 guys you know, in a bomber. And his idea was, I want standard operating procedures so that everybody knows what everybody else is doing at every phase of the flight. So that was, right, one of the things that he implemented in SAC. Another thing that he implemented in SAC that came from his days in World War II was hard cruise, which basically means there's this notion, you know, in the flying community that I take a high time uh, aircraft commander, put it with a brand new co-pilot to kind of get that mentoring. Same with a uh, radar navigator or bombardier who's high time with the young navigator to kind of bring them along. So we take the experience and we try to even it out. And LeMay said, that's not working if we're in combat. And he was always about getting crews ready to go to combat. If we're in combat and I have, you know, 11 people that work well together, don't break them up, keep them together and let them continue to fly together. Uh, as part of the research, I went to B-47 reunion um, to talk to some people who had flown that aircraft under SAC and met a crew or at least a member of a crew who the three of them, because the B-47 crew was three people, who had PCS, which means moved from base to base together at least two different times, had flown together for seven or eight years, the same three people. And that was LeMay's idea of, hey, if you've got three people that work well together, keep them together. So realistic training hard crews, uh, standardized procedures. Now, how does he keep SAC on a war footing? He adds in the idea of no notice inspection. So um, how do I keep a force in being ready to go to war without actually them going to war? One of the idea for him was, hey, I'm flying. I interviewed uh, General David Clark, who used to be an aide to LeMay. He was a JCS under Jimmy Carter. He was LeMay's aide. He ran LeMay's crew. He said they would be out flying and LeMay would be like, hey, I'm canceling my flight plan. I'm landing at this Air Force base unannounced, get greeted by security police. And the security police would basically say, hey, go get your wing commander. LeMay would tell the security police, wing commander would come up and he'd say, execute your war plan. And that person's career rose or fell based on how well they executed it. But it did keep all of the wing commanders and the people in SAC on, you know, on Ray Razor's edge. And then the last thing I'll say he did to help build that force in being, that deterrent force, was using competition. Uh, so outside of SAC headquarters, there was a totem pole. Every wing in SAC was rank ordered on the totem pole based on different metrics, uh, you know, bomb scores, all from bomb scores all the way down to VD rates, if, as that was a thing back then, right? So That was a competition. Uh, that's right. So that was a metric that SAC used to see, you know, how well your soldiers or airmen were doing. Um, so he did that, right? So he he did use competition and, you know, to as a way to say, hey, the you know, keep people at a razor's edge, a deterrent force. I'm going to use competition so that 
people are competing against one another, but it's also ironing, sharpening iron. And they're, you know, we're, we're getting better by competing against one another because there's really not an enemy that we're going to fight day to day. But he wanted to create that mindset in SAC that you are at war every day you come to work. Yeah. Some of my favorite parts of the book are when you talk about what these men and their families are going through kind of off of the flight line and how you put LeMay in that position as well. I remember uh, the co-host for this show, when he was reading the book, he tweeted out the one passage about, you know, you've got LeMay building car auto repair shops on base and stuff and that that kind of thing. And and he said, you know, this is the LeMay we need more of because LeMay is such a controversial figure. You know, some people love him, some people hate him for all kinds of reasons, but you've got you know, LeMay presented in much different light than I think we're used to seeing him. Can you talk maybe a bit about his role in kind of the off, off war stuff? So his idea was, I'll say this, his idea was, if I'm going to demand this much from my people, then I need to take care of my people uh, who are assigned to strategic air command. Um, so in order to do that, what he, the first thing he wanted to do was help create uh, a base housing uh, that was suitable for SAC warriors. So his idea was that using modular housing was that somebody would take basically every, if you get a group together, somebody would take 30 days, everybody would contribute their money to that one guy for 30 days. And then that person would take 30 days of their leave and they would build their modular home with the money that everybody had given them. And then the next month, somebody else takes their leave and they give their money to him. Um, the lawyers, LeMay was not a fan of lawyers, but the lawyers got involved <laughs> and said, this is not a, a doable plan. It's not legal. But uh, eventually, Weary Housing comes along. It's named after a senator who helped to get housing on onto bases at SAC. The second thing he did was, now that's for married families, but for the single airmen, a lot of the bases that SAC took over after independence from the army were barracks spaces, right? So they're they're in a barracks format. And LeMay's like, we're a 24-7 organization, so we can't go to war in a barracks mindset. We have people who are working shifts. You got a mid-shift, you got a late shift, you got a morning shift, and these people, they can't hunk, bunk, swap because they're just, you know, working different shifts. So what we need is a dorm system. And so LeMay institutes the dormitory system, which is still a, a standard in the Air Force today. Um, which is where it goes all the way back to LeMay and the idea that the Air Force is 24-7, we need dorms, not barracks. In addition to the, the housing situation, he did try to provide airmen with some way to have fun when these long days were over. So he was famous. He was not a big fitness buff, but he was famous for uh, being a car enthusiast. So he would go, his second deputy, not Thomas Power, but the deputy after him, and him built a race car or a car and they put a jet engine in the back of it. <laughs> that was their you know, thing. So he does create auto hobby shops at all the bases, which is still a feature of Air Force bases today, uh, as a way for airmen to, you know, have some tinker with their machines off base. Um, he does have a plan. Again, lawyers get involved and he shuts it down. But initially it was to raise money for orphans and widows. His idea was to, at certain bases, close down the runway. People who had tinkered with their cars had built these drag cars would go out and drag strip down the, the runway and uh, people would pay money to come watch and they'd use the money, you know, to help out, again, orphans and widows. 
uh, lawyers and the town people were like, you're not paying enough taxes or you're not paying taxes. So he was like, I'm done with this and shuts the, <laughs> shuts the whole process down. The other two things that he does is, again, not a big fitness enthusiast, but a very much a gun enthusiast in terms of trap and skeet. So he, he starts rod and gun clubs on bases, which there's still some bases today that have rod and gun clubs. And then the last thing he does, and again, after a 20 hour sortie, I don't know why anybody would want to go fly even more, but <laughs> he does start arrow clubs, which are still features at air force bases today. So a lot of these things that LeMay did back in the fifties, when he was heading sack are still continues in the air force today. And these are the things Look, I'm going to demand a lot from you on the job. I'm going to provide you some, you know, activities off of the job that, you know, to take care of my airmen. Uh, you talked a little bit in the book about LeMay's wife and, and how she was part of creating this culture as well. What is her contribution to all of this? There's not as much on her uh, that's out there other than being the general officer's wife who, you know, takes care of the spouses. Now, um, when we talk about SAC, we're talking a 1950s organization. So it is very heavily male dominated. Um, the one thing I will say, right, is not necessarily about M Mrs. LeMay, but about SAC in general in terms of women is this is an organization that is demanding a lot of hours of, of the people who are serving. Again, mostly men at this point, long hours, deployments, Korea comes up. We start to send people to do what we call reflex operations, which are forward deployed uh, nuclear alert forces. All of deployments, long hours at home, SAC does have at one point the highest divorce rate of any command. And it's because wow. of the stress that's put on the, the families that are associated with, with the organization. Um, I want to talk a little bit about methodology because you mentioned using some oral histories and some archival stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the process of putting a book like this together? There were three sources that were used primarily for, for the writing of the book. So oral interviews with those who were either in existence or um, who, who have been deceased. So I had the privilege of sitting down with... Um, General Shad, General Doherty before he passed away, and General David Clark, because um, all of them were key figures of SAC at the early uh, stages of its existence. Um, General Doherty, who came in as a lawyer, uh, was a musician who played with Dizzy Gillespie, um, wow. and he was a lawyer, and then he became a bomber pilot, right? Which I guess, you know, I guess there's life after being a lawyer. But anyway, so, <laughs> um, but um, so, Oral, and then there are oral histories that Historical Research Agency here at Maxwell has uh, all of these oral interviews with generals who, when they left office, sat down and basically did oral history as part of their uh, leaving service. So those are available. The third or the second uh, source I used was I went out to um, reunions and talked to those who actually served because the oral histories will give you the top level view of, of the leadership, but you want to get what the man on the street thought. Uh, so some of that was through memoirs that were uh, either out published already or people at some of these reunions have written their own memoirs. And, you know, as long as you cite them, they're happy to, you know, contribute. Um, and then there are those who will sit down and tell you their stories. So uh, I went to a Missileer reunion, a B-52 reunion, a B-47 reunion, a SAC uh, controllers reunion, and then a general SAC reunion. So um, all of these um, organizations or these people who had served in SAC had, you know, some of them, when they recount, are just like, 
glowing praise for General LeMay, not so much for people who came after him, um, but they very much were um, fans of of his leadership and what he was trying to do with SAC. Um, and then the third source is just archival research. So whether it's at the Library of Congress, where they have some of LeMay's papers um, and some of the other general officers' papers, or at um, what we call Branch 2, which is of the National Archives, which is in College Park, Maryland, that's where most of the Air Force and SAC documents, SAC documents are also available at the Historical Research Agency here at Maxwell. But correspondence between the Air Force and SAC is primarily at the National Archives Branch 2, which is in College Park, Maryland. So that's where you get an idea of what LeMay was trying to do and how the Air Force was responding. Um, one of the things LeMay did was, you know, he was arguing with people uh, in the Air Force that, hey, um, there's only one command at war, that's Strategic Air Command, and because there's only one organization at war every day, my people deserve special promotions or spot promotions. And so the Air Force gave them to him, and he got a certain allotment of where he could walk up to someone who's a major and say, you're now a lieutenant colonel for the hard work you did. Um, you get that from that kind of correspondence as well as what he's trying to do in terms of building SAC, uh, making it bigger because of what the Air Force is asking him to do. For those who don't know, SAC was what we call a specified command, which basically means in today's world, after Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986, Global Strike Command, which is in existence today, does organize, train, and equip, which means they get the forces ready to go to war. STRATCOM is the war fighter. They will build the plan and they will take the forces Global Strike provides and they will execute a war plan. Um, in LeMay's day, he was responsible for both. He trained the forces and then if called upon, he executed the war plan. So it, it's just a different mentality back then where he's not just training people, but he's also building a war plan. That leads into a question I wanted to ask as well. What do you think the implications of, of this research are for moving forward, whether it's for the Air Force or otherwise? And, and either from a cultural perspective, is there something we should take from this or from kind of a war fighting perspective? So I think there's a couple of things that General LeMay did that um, we as a we can learn from the present day. So the first is he understood the importance of the mission. He understood, hey, the previous guy was fired. I'm in this position now. And my job is to get this force ready to execute a decision made about the national security of the United States, how important it is to have a force ready to go. One of the things General Kenny did that got also got him fired wasn't just preparing the troops, but his mentality was, hey, if we're ever called upon, we're going to be ready to go to war in months. And LeMay was like, no, no, we're not going to be in World War II where we're going to get months to prepare. We got to be ready to go now in this new Cold War environment. So he's, his job is to get the forces ready. So how does he do that, right? So what we learn can learn today is what he did, realistic training, no notice inspections, competition, Global Strike today, uh, when Global Strike stood up in 2009, as they mature, they start bringing in today Global Strike Challenge, which is getting back to the bomb competition idea of ironing, sharpening iron to get the forces competing against one another because that's what makes you better. So he kind of laid out some of the things that we need to do, standard operating procedures. What we take away from this is there is a different um, mindset that comes with doing the nuclear mission. It's not like a conventional scenario um, where we want people to innovate, take risk, 
uh, be on, you know, handle situations that they develop on the fly. With nukes, everything is very predictable, very scripted, um, minimal error um, because of the importance of the mission. So he understood the importance of the mission and he developed the how and what we're going to do to get this, to get ourselves ready. I will say the challenge today is LeMay gave us a an idea, a pathway to developing a deterrent, which is we know what and how to do in order to complete the mission. And I will say today what leadership probably struggles with that LeMay didn't have to do in the Cold War is why are we doing the mission? There's no more Soviet Union, so why do we still have missiles on alert? Or why are we still doing, you know, flying bombers off the coast of South Korea or off of the Russian air defense system? Or why are we still doing this? And so LeMay didn't have, if you live in a Cold War mindset where you've got a known enemy, that's pretty obvious. He understood why we were doing it and developed the how and the what. Today we got the how and the what why we're still doing it or what is the importance of the mission is the struggle to communicate to the troops, you know, especially those entering the air force today who their mindset is, you know, most of them weren't even alive at nine 11, let alone during the cold war. Um, speaking of younger generations, uh, what advice might you have for grad students that are kind of starting off on a big research project like this on how they can get started and, and succeed? Well, I will say, so I will say, first of all, Research something that you are excited about. Um, (laughs) This came, um, I'm obviously a bomber pilot by trade. Uh, Did 26 years in the Air Force as a bomber pilot. Uh, Flew the B-52 and the B-2. And so when I started my research, I was like, World War II bombing. I think there's a lot of works already out there in existence on that era that have been, that's been well covered in the historiography. So my idea was I served in Strategic Air Command right at the very end before it went away from 89 to 91 and always uh, was told, hey, you guys, in, when I flew in Desert Storm, you guys in SAC do things different than the rest of the Air Force. So that provided, when I had a chance to do research, provided my initial motivation to go, why is it the SAC was seen as different than the other commands? And so even in you know 1989, right, it, it was still seen different than the other commands. So that provided my, I guess, motivation, my inquiry into why uh, things were. So I would say, you know, one, make sh- it's got to be something that you're motivated about. It's got to be something that there's research material out there available for you. And then doing the research is fun. It's sitting down and actually taking the research and putting it onto paper. That that just comes in waves. There's yeah. no, <laughs> there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, I will say, you know, you the. The best advice I got was get away from the computer. And so uh, whether it's, you know, out swimming in the pool, walking or riding a bike, that's when you write your paper because you're thinking about it. And then you come back and sit down and put pen to paper because you've thought about it for a while. But yeah, I had that same experience when I was doing my (laughs) dissertation as well. That's probably all that I have. Is there anything that you didn't get a chance to talk about that you might want to throw in? I'll just so I'll say this. Right. So you mentioned it before. General LeMay is a controversial figure. So let me say this. Um, so the latest work on General LeMay by Warren Kozak um, is a biography on General LeMay. And he, in his introduction, says something about General LeMay that I think is still true today. And it is that General LeMay was the person we needed at the time we needed him to whip sack into shape, to give us a nuclear deterrent so that the Soviet Union would not think that there was a weakness in, in American defenses 
and attack. And LeMay was the guy we needed for that moment. And then once that moment passes, we kind of want to forget about him. Mm. He was the person we needed when we didn't really have a bombing strategy in Tokyo. So firebombing was the strategy. And then after it's done, we kind of want to forget about it. So he is a controversial figure for the Tokyo bombing, for the way he ransacked. Now, two things about General May. A lot of people say, oh, General May, he was a hard butt. He never smiled. Well, one of the reasons he never smiled is because he had uh, balls palsy in one side of his face and he couldn't smile. So that's why I was kind of seeing with a cigar in his mouth. But secondly, he was not a fan of the Kennedys. Um, and this is where his legacy gets tarnished slightly. So he was not a fan of the Kennedys. So in 1968, when it's perceived that Robert Kennedy is going to be the presidential candidate before he's assassinated, uh, LeMay agrees to run on a Dixiecrat ticket with George Wallace as his vice president. George Wallace is obviously a polarizing figure. To and, say the least, yeah. and LeMay agreeing to be his running mate, I think just didn't help his overall image. Or, but his legacy in terms of being an Air Force general and the best bomber, or at the time, the best bomber general. Uh, I will say this about, you know, great generals. LeMay is a leader. Uh, why is he such... Why does he have such an impact on SAC? He takes over in October of 48. He leaves in June of 57, almost nine years in charge of one organization. He's going to leave an impact. That being said, as someone who, when they give orders, people execute, he is great. You take that same person, and from there, he goes up to be the vice chief and eventually the chief of the Air Force. You put that same person in the halls of Washington and in bureaucracy where people don't respond to orders as well. Mm -hmm. You have to glad hand with Congress to get them to, you know, give you money. Just not as um, when people don't respond to your orders as well as when you're in charge of troops. Being in a bureaucracy has a different mindset than being in a command position. And I think LeMay does much better when he's commanding than he is in a bureaucracy. Right. It's a different skill set. Right. Right. And I really like how you've given us a more complex look at LeMay and rather than coming down on either side of he's great or he's bad, you really paint a complete person. And I think that's valuable. All right. That should wrap it up. That's about all we have for you today. Again, I'm Mike Hankins. You can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein. That's S-T-I-E-N and online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloons2drones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article to us for publication, we're more than happy to have you do that. Please do so at balloons2drones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.